around the world in 80 trades. What happens when the world is truly your oyster? It is like the world's most beautiful puzzle that never gets solved. You can solve it for brief periods of time, and then you have to start working on it all over again. And there are lots of opportunities. 100-point swing on the Dow. It's an extraordinary trade and so well thought out. It's really about having a certain temperament. I said it's going to work. The Artful Trader. Hi and welcome to the first episode of The Artful Trader, an original podcast series by CMC Markets. I'm Michael McCarthy, the Chief Market Strategist at CMC Markets Asia Pacific and your host for this podcast series. Each episode we'll talk to one of the industry's greats and dig deep into their personal histories to find out about the highs and lows of trading and discover their journey to mastering the art of the financial markets. Today, we'll hear from Raoul Powell, who has built his success on piecing together the dizzying complexities of the macro puzzle. Raoul Powell is one of the world's top macro investors. He used to work at Goldman Sachs and as a hedge fund manager at GLG, retiring from trading at 36. His latest venture, Real Vision TV, is a finance news channel with the aim of improving transparency in finance news. We're talking to Raoul from the Cayman Islands, where he now lives. We'll talk about where in the world the new opportunities lie, but first, we discuss macro investing and why he thinks it's the most beautiful puzzle. Raoul, you've been described as a true European with heritage across the continent. You lived all over the world and and you're currently in the Cayman Islands. Are you an internationalist? Uh, Yeah, well, actually, true European's a little bit difficult because I'm half Indian, half Dutch, grew up in England... Lived in India for a bit, lived in Spain for 10 years, and now live in the Cayman Islands. So yeah, I'm a kind of man of no home and a citizen of everywhere. Belonging to nowhere but feeling part of everywhere is one of the best attributes you can have because you see things with a much broader perspective. You know, where East meets West is a fantastic perspective to have on the world. So for me, I found it really useful. Is that why you became a macro investor? Um, maybe, Maybe it is. Maybe subliminally it is. Really, I think for me, why macro resonated for me is because it is, it is like the world's most beautiful puzzle that never gets solved. You can solve it for brief periods of time and then you have to start working on it all over again. It's a very visual thing where you have to live in the future. So for me, that's the way my brain's wired. So, you know, it thinks much more visually than it does numerically. You described it as finding the missing piece of the puzzle. Was there a light bulb moment or was it a, a gradual realisation? I think the light bulb moment for me was the Asian crisis, uh, I guess about 1997, where I realised that suddenly the world had gone pure macro. If you remember, the mid-90s was a period like now of low volatility, the dollar didn't go anywhere, things didn't do a lot. You know, we had the bond market blow up in, in 94, and then basically the markets trended higher in equities. And not a lot went on. Emerging markets went higher, and there was no value to be added. And then the Asian crisis came, and suddenly you had to learn about deflation and debt and currency pegs. And then all of macro came together, and I realized it was all about the confluence of economics, markets, charts, imbalances and all of those good things. But I see from your biography that you started with technical analysis. Can you tell us something about the journey from being a chartist to being a macro specialist? After university, my first job was at a company called Dow Jones Tellerate, which eventually became part of Reuters um, and Thomson Reuters. So that was a company that, that had all the trading screens in the dealing rooms. 
And my first job there was customer support for a technical analysis product. And part of that, I had to train traders how to use technical analysis. It was kind of the hot thing at the time in the very early 90s. Now, obviously, the problem was that I knew nothing about it. So I had to learn from <laughs> scratch. So I picked up the book, John Murphy's Guide to Technical Analysis, read it and realized that I saw things in pictures. So therefore, here was a way of understanding any market in the world in a second. And so I thought, wow, this is fantastic for me. So that led on to getting a job offer at James Capel, which was a stockbroking firm that was part of HSBC in the UK. And it was, it was a very big firm at the time. And there I was working in European equity derivatives. When I started getting exposure to more macro thinkers and some hedge funds. And it was from those hedge funds that I started realizing that I thought in the same way. And that chart was an advantage that I could basically flip through any asset, any market, anywhere in the world and have a rough idea what was going on. And the great thing about a chart is it forces you to ask the question, why? And that's the whole world of macro. Why is it doing this? And what does it mean? And what's the knock-on effects? So that's, that's where it started for me. And then I moved firms to NatWest, the big UK bank at the time. And there I suddenly got introduced to all the world's largest hedge funds. And so before I knew it, suddenly I was speaking to Paul Tudor-Jones every day. Wow. You know, all of the, the senior portfolio managers at More Capital, Lewis Bacon, and all of his team, the guys at Tiger, the guys at Soros. And I was immersed in that world. And, and also long-term capital management and a whole bunch of other really famous names of the time. And I found a niche for myself. I was the European guy who covered all of these guys, and I was one of the only people in the world to be doing that. And it was just like being taught acting by Robert De Niro. You know, it was an extraordinary opportunity to watch and learn how these guys did things. Then I moved on to Goldman Sachs, where I was asked to start and manage the hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives in Europe. And there, for me, I got exposed to absolutely everybody but also because that firm is so broad and deep, you get to speak to the fixed income guys and the currency guys and the commodity guys, and you can start piecing together how Stan Druckenmiller's brain works, how George Soros's brain works, because you could see trades across numerous asset classes. And that, to me, was the missing part of the jigsaw. I had the charts, and I realized suddenly that Stan Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor-Jones, uh, George Soros, all of these guys started with a chart, so I did too that I learned that they would then piece together what the world meant around it. So I started to do that. And then realizing that there were knock-on effects across all asset classes. So suddenly there was the whole world opened up to me. And again, just being able to learn from the greatest people in the entire history of the industry was just incredible. Is there one person who, who really influenced the way you see the world or was it a collection of people? It was a collection of people and, and it was... Paul Tudor-Jones, probably the most... I'm not a trader like he is, and clearly will never be as good as he is, but, you know, his use of charts and how he succinctly brought everything down to the most basic of concepts whilst understanding how complex the world was, that was really useful. I tried to learn from how incredibly Stan Druckenmiller would construct trades. I mean, he was a genius, as was Lewis Bacon. So I learned from everybody... Um, I learned as much as I could, and you know that was the best thing about being in a, in a position like that. You've seen a lot of the trading world, and you've seen some of the world's biggest traders at work. Can you describe one of the most beautifully constructed trades you've ever witnessed? Yeah, it was one of the main names I've just mentioned, and it was during the Asian crisis. Right. And the head of trading came on to me and said, uh, Rel, I want to sell South Africa. I said, well, what does that mean? He said, I don't care, sell any equity, don't sell futures, 
and just keep selling. Okay, I'd never had an order like that. I don't think anybody's had. So we just started selling equities. And this went on for days. And I said, does it need to look like the index? What do you want me to sell? He goes, oh, look, I don't care. Just sell stuff. You know, <laughs> if you can make it look like the index, that'll help. Sell everything. Sell everything. And this went on for days and really aggressively and in enormous size. I can't remember what it was, a billion dollars or something at the time or half a billion dollars in South Africa. That was an enormous trade. Mm. And I thought, what are they trying to do? They're trying to manipulate the market. You know, the market was collapsing, but everything was collapsing in, this was 97, 98. Uh, everything was collapsing. So, you know, it all died off and, you know, we carried on doing business. And several months later, they called back up and said, can you just stop buying back that stuff in South Africa? And then on we went for another five days of buying back stocks in South Africa. And it was a bit messy, but not quite as, not quite as rushed as it was on the way in. And then we closed it all out. And I called the guy up and said, what on earth was that about? It was all a bit messy. You didn't really care what you were doing. Um, and I figured out you've made about 10% or 8%, I think. Uh, was it worth it? And he's like, don't be crazy. We've made 58%. I said, what do you mean? He said, we didn't care about the stocks because that was just a bonus on the side. The problem was there were two currencies in South Africa and one of them you couldn't get access to for foreigners. And the, the offshore one, which foreigners could get access to, everyone wanted to short the currency. So interest rates were over 20%. So to short the currency, you had to pay enormous interest sums. But the onshore one wasn't affected by the speculators. But by selling South African stocks in South Africa, you essentially would sell the stocks and receive rand. And then you could sell those rand for dollars and buy them back later. So what it was, was a way of borrowing South African currency for half a percent, which was the cost of stock borrow versus the 20% uh -huh. that the interest rates were pricing in. So it was a, basically an interest rate arbitrage and the ability to short the currency, and the currency fell about 50%. It was an extraordinary trade that was so well, so well thought out that nobody understood it until it was done, and everyone went, wow. And I didn't see anybody else do that trade. Rao, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will immediately leap to the idea that the Chinese currency is currently in a similar situation. Do you see it that way? Uh, yeah, but it's harder to trade onshore stocks and the interest rate differentials between the onshore and offshore currencies are not the same. Now, under a speculative attack, it may be possible if you can get access to the stocks yourself. That was just a unique situation at the time. Mm. And sure, it'll probably replay itself somewhere else in the world. But I don't think China's the one right now because there's no big interest rate differential. It takes a special something to be able to recognise that trade, to put that together. A lot of us have technical skills, but what are the extras that allow a trader to see the world like that? I, you know, it's a deep understanding of the plumbing of financial markets helps because the very best trade construction is that. Then there's the amazing knock-on effects. Um, again, the, very, the same guy um, was brilliant at processing things quicker than anybody I've ever seen. And there was a time when the... European telco, it was in England that they had the 3G licenses for mobile phones and the first bid came out and it was way higher. So suddenly there was a situation where um, the 3G licenses were going for extraordinary sums and the next European nation said, oh, we should do the same. And that guy, the moment he saw that hit the tape, he realised that every country in Europe was going to sell its 3G licenses and that every single incumbent phone company had to bid wildly to get access to it. 
So there was a shortage of this, of this particular thing and people had to pay whatever it was. And he figured out, rightly so, that they were all, almost going to bankrupt themselves doing it. And uh, he did, you know, he was so fast in realising that opportunity, seeing the knock-on effects and what it would do to the telco sector overall. And that was, again, brilliance by him, by not thinking it's a single-stock-specific, single-country thing, that it was a global thing, it was going to spread rapidly. And to, to win in global macro, you need to live in the future and understand the knock-on effects. There's a lot of fear amongst traders that robots are taking over the world, but that's a trade that would be almost impossible for a, an algorithm to find, isn't it? Yeah, look, I do think algorithms will take, will take over a lot of what global macro does. They can understand imbalances in the business cycle and various bits and pieces. Trade construction, it would take a long time for artificial intelligence to learn all of these kind of things. And to understand the knock-on effects is not that easy. However, if you think about it, what they do with the chess supercomputers is basically it is knock-on effects. So there is a possibility that it's understandable. But unlike chess, you can't game out every single kind of play there's ever been because financial markets are so dynamic. So I don't know. I, th I think it's, there is space for humans, but less space than people think. There is only space for probably genius. I'd just like to go back to what you said a moment ago, that uh, macro means living in the future and in the past, not in the present. I'm sure that there'd be a lot of um, fans of Eckhart Tolle who'd be aghast to hear you say that. In what way? It's not being in the now. It, ca it cannot be in the now. If you're in the now, you're reflecting what is in the price now. So you are adding no incremental value. Your incremental value is always living in the future. Where is this going and how, what is the path to get there? And what are the probabilities of those paths being, you know, it goes one way, the other way, or, you know, multiple variations of. And Soros was very good at doing that. And I think it was in uh, Soros on Soros, his book, where he talks about the probabilities of paths. And that is all about living in the future. Now, if you live in the now, all you're doing is representing the news flow. You have no advantage over an algorithm or anything else, because you're not expressing anything. What you need to express is where the future lies. Now, the past is important in the future because the history of financial markets and the history of economies is cyclical. Patterns repeat and things repeat, and people basically follow the same behaviour patterns time and time and time again. So if you understand the past, you have a better understanding of the future. So I'd like to get into your understanding of the markets. When you look at a chart, what do you see? You see where the prices come from first and where we are today is it in a bull market is it in a bear market has it been consolidating has it you know all, all of the, that information is there so then you start applying chart patterns you know is there a wedge on the chart is it going to break higher could break lower and you know is there a head and shoulders is there a channel it's trading in whatever it does all the chart does for you is it's not wizardry it's just probabilities it gives you probabilities of certain things happening. You generally know that a wedge pattern or a pennant or a flag, whatever you want to call it, they tend to break in the direction of the trend. I.e. if it's come up, consolidates, it will go up again. So you would say probably something like I would suggest 70% of all of those patterns resolve themselves in the same way. Well, that's incredible value. That's odds on your side. Now, there are times when you're going to get it wrong. You know, nobody can be right. But all you're trying to do is be right more often than you're wrong. And have you ever ignored the charts? Uh, yes. And I'm blind without a chart. Basically, 
You know, whenever I've done that, you're acting on gut emotion. Some people can do that well. It's just not my thing. Different people have different ways that suit how they think and how they act. Some people act in short-term time horizons. That doesn't work for me. Again, the greatest piece of advice I've ever given was from Paul Tudor Jones. And he said, Raoul, the best traders in the world are the people whose trading time horizon matches their idea time horizon. He said, because most people tend to have a longer-term idea, I think the economy's going from here to here over the next year, and they trade kind of one-week trades or two-week trades or one-month trades. He said, well, that doesn't make any sense. If you're trading a one-week view, trade the one-week view, but don't trade a a one-year view. If you're going to trade a one-year view, then expect to have the trade on for that year. That was incredible. So it allows different people to have different time horizons depending on how they see the world. And for me, that means longer term. I mean, I'm much more of a six months to five year kind of guy. And, you know, I'm much longer than most than the short term. And the reason I like time horizon, longer term time horizon, is having spent a long time in this industry, I realized that everybody is forced into a monthly NAV, which means that to trade around the NAV and not lose too much money from month to month or, or whatever it may be to manage their risk, they're basically trading two week or three week time horizons. And so if everybody's competing in one area, compete in the other where nobody is. And that's in the longer term. Because in the longer term, I find macro much more predictable. You essentially have a much better probability of understanding what the business cycle is going to do over a three-year or two-year time horizon than over a one-month or two-month time horizon because you're just trading one or two bits of economic data. But over that period of time, you know the ebbs and flows or the trends in the economy or in asset prices. And so I found that's a huge advantage for me and it's better for how my kind of mind works. Well, that opens up a question, doesn't it? Can you tell us about some of your biggest mistakes in the market? Oh, yeah, I've made a few of those. Um, I think and mistakes are what we learn from, right? We don't learn from when we get it right because we don't understand what we did because we just got it right. But when you got it wrong, you actually analyse. Why did I get that wrong? Pain is a great teacher. Yeah, but it also, you know, it, it's the hardest thing. You know, psychologically, it overwhelms you. You know, the, the psychological pain of losing money far exceeds any high that you get from making money. For me, I think back in 2002, three, maybe 2003, um, the Federal Reserve was still kind of not, had finished cutting rates, but were on hold. And I looked at the opportunity and thought, well, you know, maybe I can bet on them not doing anything. And there were some complicated option ways of doing this that basically would suggest that I shouldn't be able to lose any money at all, but I could make a lot of money if nothing happened. So I thought, fantastic, or I I could lose very little money. So uh, myself and the co-manager of the fund at the time, I was running a global macro fund for GLG Partners, put on an absolutely enormous bet, along with some of the other really famous macro guys in Europe at the time, some of the, uh, the largest hedge funds in the world, And what happened was something we didn't expect, which was that the price of volatility was marked against us by the market makers and everybody else who knew about these positions. And basically what should have been limited loss trades suddenly were losing four times as much as they ever should have done just because of what they were doing to option prices. And then that made me realize that overcomplicating a trade generally exposes you to risks you didn't know you were doing. So that should have been a winning trade, but it ended up of us all getting stopped out and losing more money than we should have done. Mm. And I think that's a very 
very typical lesson of never overcomplicate things. All right. So just to clarify, the market makers, instead of marking a normal skew, were making an S-shaped skew. Yeah, because they knew it was going to cause us all the most amounts of pain and there was nothing we could do about it. How did that make you feel? Um, I would like to say angry, but it may feel stupid. Right. That, um, the point was is we took too much risk thinking we had a very limited risk position, but the risk was much larger than we thought. And I think that's very typical of mistakes made by people. Also, the other mistake I made, um, and this was when I started publishing The Global Macro Investor, so I opted out of the hedge fund business and opted out of the rat race and moved to Spain on the Mediterranean coast and started writing macroeconomic research for hedge funds, uh, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, governments, and stuff like that. And in 2008 and seven. In fact, six, five, four, when I started writing, I'd had really, really spectacularly good years, and particularly 2007, 2008. And 2009, I based my entire framework generally around the business cycle using the ISM, and it had started turning higher, but I was so involved with what was going on and so bearish of the, probably the tail risk outcomes that I ignored my entire framework and went with my gut. And that cost me a lot of money in 2009, where I just ignored everything I've done, which is use your framework, use your framework. And I just ignored it because I thought I knew better. So I second guessed myself. And once you second guess yourself and you've walked away from your framework, you have no, nothing concrete with which to pin your trade on. So then you're just hoping that you get it right, uh, as opposed to knowing that it's deviating from your framework and maybe you need to reassess. And that was a very expensive mistake. So the equity market low was March 2009. How long did you persist with this? Most of that year. Ouch. Yeah, I mean, on and off. You know, I'd take the positions off, have another go, because I thought, you know, it's going to roll back over again, whether it's the equity market or, you know, various other forms of risk uh, around that time. And that's how it is. You know, you have to learn these lessons. You don't learn a single thing when you make money. Uh, Raoul, you're also well known for forecasting the next big thing, whether it's a drop in oil or a move in the dollar or Bitcoin. Where in the world do you see the next big opportunities? Um, you know, that's a more complicated question. Usually I'm, I'm full of answers to that. If we look at what the key driver of asset prices are, it's the business cycle. The business cycle generally around the world is okay or reasonably strong. Um, however, when you look beneath the surface, things are not as good as you expect. Um, but that leaves you in a situation where you want to express views about the business cycle turning over, but it's not doing so. So that's not a great view to have. You know, I've been very long the US dollar for a very long time, you know, four years or so. Um, and I still think the dollar is in a bull market, but it's correcting. So normally I would say, right, you've got to do something with the dollar, but it's going against me for the time being. And with the dollar going against me, it goes against my view of oil a bit. Oil tends to fall when the dollar goes up. That goes against my emerging market view. So I'm kind of stuck in an area where of the main global macro, I'm kind of waiting for more information, the real opportunity. So I see very little opportunity to take risk. Equity markets are all-time highs. Valuations are almost all-time highs. You know, risk-taking is at all-time highs. Um, you know, complacency is all-time. So the whole thing worries me. So it keeps me out of a lot of things. And yet volatility is at all-time lows and volatility is at all-time lows. So that keeps me out of many trades because the market is doing something opposite to my view and it's not confirmed yet by my economic framework. 
But then I look further and think, okay, where are the opportunities? And you see some incredible things that happen. And again, this for me was a classic knock-on effect trade where suddenly at the end of last year, India announced the, the banning of large notes, demonetization they called it. And everybody and every libertarian in the world jumping up and down saying, this is terrible, they're stopping banknotes. And I was first saying, which I think is now lazy analysis, of going to the first thing. And everybody, you know, the newspapers, everybody says the same thing. And everybody starts following each other and the groupthink prevails. And I stepped back and I thought, well, I need to read some more about this. And suddenly I realized that this was actually the final, as opposed to being a first step, was the final step in one of the biggest transformations of any economy I'd ever seen in history. And that was the digitization of the entire Indian economy with something started called Aadhaar, which was a digital biometric identification for every single person in India. Now there's 1.3 billion people in India, 1.2 billion are now on this Aadhaar system where they have fingerprint or retina scans attached to a number, like your social security number. Now, okay, that sounds fine. But in India, it meant that you could now suddenly prove who you were because so many people had no birth certificates. And then if you could prove who you were, you could then open mobile phone accounts or bank accounts. So suddenly it started freeing people up. Now, what was amazing about the fingerprints and this new technology also called India Stack, it meant that all of your details like your utility bills, your bank details could all be attached to your fingerprint. And so you can go into a mobile phone store and get a phone and an account just with your fingerprint in 20 seconds. Wow. Which is mind-blowing. And then it meant you could open a bank account in 20 seconds with a fingerprint, which is extraordinary. But then India Stack is also going to start allowing people to put their medical records on. So if you get run over somewhere in middle of nowhere India, they can figure out and find out who you are and what your medical records are so they could treat you for any ailments or whatever it is. But not only that, attached to this, India Stack, is something called UPI, which is a payments interface. Now, the payments interface actually is like Bitcoin in the fact that it's, it's a frictionless payment system with no middleman. So basically, I could send you money with my fingerprint instantaneously with no middleman and no fees. And it basically can handle 50 times the amount of traffic that Bitcoin can currently. So... That is revolutionary. So what you're also doing is you're bringing people into the financial system. They can, they're forced to open bank accounts because they can't use cash. India was 97% cash. So what you're doing is recapitalizing the banks, forcing the, the, the money into the banking system, allowing the banks to re-lend out, to lend money for infrastructure spending, to build roads and bridges and all the things that India needs. So it's transforming the economy, it will transform the economy at, at macro level and at micro level because... The rural poor could now suddenly get access to mobile phones and bank accounts and subsidies. They could have a proof of who they are. They also got rid of the corruption of the middleman who take the money away from these guys. It meant the subsidies went directly to them. Nobody was in the middle taking a slice. So what it's going to do over time to India is completely revolutionise the economy. And no other major economy is anywhere near as close to this digitization as India is. Um, and the whole thing is net conducive to a much longer economic growth pattern from India. Now, that doesn't mean India won't have large corrections as you know foreign flows comes in and out or whatever may happen. But it becomes this economy with a demographic that's young, that has no debt, 
that is eager to do trade and do business and now has an economic system with less rigidity and more freedom. So the probability of India having a higher rate of growth for longer is extremely high. So stuff like that gets me really excited. I can hear that in your voice, Ralph. It's, it's very clear that you're still very passionate uh, about the macro environment, about markets. So why did you retire at 36? Because of what we talked about before. I realised the hedge fund business was going to die. And it was going to die because everybody was having to compete in the same time horizon. And the investors had gone from being family offices who wanted risk and high return. The old days of Soros, where he would make, you know, 100% in a year and suddenly have a down year of down 30 or whatever it may be. And it was return driven. It then became the pension funds who invested and they wanted it to look like a bond. So that was the prevalence of these big firms like Brevin Howard that could produce good returns with low volatility. But that sucked in all of the assets in the world because everybody, all of the pension funds, wanted 10% returns and 5% volatility or 8% returns and 4% volatility. And it went lower and lower and lower as bond yields went lower. So basically, they thought of it as a bond yield. So I saw that coming and I decided I had to get out. Um, I thought the time horizon, the return profile was not the beautiful game that it was, the one that we all read about in Market Wizards. It was something very different indeed. And, you know, I think I've been proven right. I mean, the industry is struggling. And then with the technology coming into it as well, it's struggling even further. When I started writing, I called it the death of G7 macro. Now, obviously, we had 2007, 2008, and a few other great macro opportunities. But overall, the kind of macro players and the equity long short players and everybody else has basically struggled. Mm, oh, indeed. And of course, the greatest trend at the moment is towards passive investing in equities. Um, but I mean, you're not really retired, are you? But... I, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, kind of, I kind of was semi-retired for a while. I was writing, you know, I thought it was a bit of um, Ernest Hemingway, grow a big beard, right. um, you know, hang around in the Mediterranean. Actually, to go back, I was one of these lucky people that predicted 2007, 2008. And I was highly uncomfortable with people I knew coming up to me saying, why didn't we know? And I was like, yeah, that's not right. Why did people at the centre of the financial system all know? And those guys who had their life savings in it didn't. I was like, hmm, this is not good. It sat really uncomfortable with me. I thought, I need to do something about this. And then I was observing the trend in the media business and seeing how you didn't need a broadcasting license to have a TV company anymore because on-demand video had now become the thing. YouTube had launched and the world effectively changed overnight and the incumbent television companies um, didn't know what to do about it. They were just paralysed with fear. And so over a glass of wine in Spain one day with a couple of friends, we thought, you know what, why don't we start a media company that takes on this challenge of not creating finance as entertainment, but finance as something meaningful. You know, treating people's life savings seriously, giving, democratizing financial information and making it available to everybody. High quality information, not the, the three minute sound bites on financial TV or the kind of low quality newsletters that are that promise 1,000% returns in a week. We thought, you know, people deserve better than this. So stupidly, knowing nothing about media, we started a media business. And that's what I do now. That's real vision. So I still write The Global Macro Investor. I still obviously invest myself. 
but also uh, I'm also the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, which is uh, the financial television and media company uh, that we started three years ago that has now grown from being some videos to having customers in 100 countries to having a podcast, which is uh, something a, uh, a lot of your guys might like called Adventures in Finance. Adventures in Finance. Which you can find on iTunes. Um, also, we have written research. We have a free newsletter called 2020. We have written publications, Real Vision publications. We have all sorts of stuff. So we're coming at the media from multiple angles and trying to reinvent and disrupt every part of it that we can. Is this about truth and transparency? Yeah, truth in finance is the core symbol of what we represent. And we don't have, we're subscription-based. We have no advertising, no sponsorship, and no editorial bias. Obviously, done. Uh, you're very well-versed in, in all things market. Have you had much of a look at behavioural finance? Yeah, and I love it. Look, I, I gave a speech at, I think it was, I've done it at Cambridge University and Warwick, uh, which was called Everything They Teach About Economics at University Shit. Um, <laughs> sorry for the language. But um, because, you know, basically all economics taught at universities are model-driven. And those models are all based on a little innocuous two words in Latin, ceteris paribus, which means all things remaining equal. And basically, that means that they don't exist in the real world. So these models don't work. They failed us time and time again. They've almost blown up the world endlessly. We switched between the Keynesian model and the monetarist model, and they're all the same. In fact, they're just models. And the sudden advent of the advances in behavioral economics and behavioral finance um, is extraordinary. When you marry behavioral finance with big data, you change the world. And I think... The future of economics lies in understanding of human behavior. You know, if you understand the business cycle, which is what I'm a student of, you understand it's cyclical. If you understand markets, you understand people do the same things time and time again. If you go into a cinema and shout fire, people on average will tend to act the same way. So once you understand that, you can understand incentive patterns and, and how to affect behavior. Once you do that, you can change economics properly. Once you start putting government policy around incentives as opposed to disincentives, which is usually the case of how it's done now, you actually can create an economic system that is more balanced and understandable and doesn't make the mistakes that we make now. Would it be fair to say that you view markets as organic, that they live and breathe? Yeah, absolutely. They live and breathe, but they always repeat themselves. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you for your generosity. Um, I'll certainly be checking out Real Vision and 2020 and all the other offerings. Fabulous. And thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. That was Raoul Powell. He's written a blog post exclusively for The Artful Trader on our site, where you can also access limited time only offers for new and existing clients. Just visit theartfultraderpodcast.com. The Artful Trader is an original podcast series by CMC Markets, a global leader in online trading. To stay up to date with the new episodes, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite podcasts from make sure you share it with your friends and leave us a rating. I'm Michael McCarthy, and this is The Artful Trader.